Well, the first job that I ever had after landscaping and pizza delivery was a bookkeeper. It was really just a plug-and-chug data entry uh, person. My job was to record debits and credits in an accounting system and pay the bills and write checks and produce budget-to-actual reports at the end of the, of, of the month. Uh, I can remember when I first started using an accounting system, I can remember being very confused. I always got the, the, the debits and the credits mixed up. You debit assets and you credit liabilities, which intuitively seems exactly the opposite. That confusion is very common, I learned, and, and yet it can create some significant problems when, when it comes to the month-end reports if you don't, if you don't enter all of that, that right. I mean, if you record assets as liabilities or expenses as income, then, then your books are going to be way off. Well, human beings have had, uh, had that problem since, since Genesis 4. We've been making the same error with our spiritual balance sheets. What a man naturally thinks should go in the spiritual profit column actually is a loss on the Lord's books. And what a man thinks has little value is actually what you need to get into heaven. Cain thought his liability was actually income that would please God, and he was cursed because of it. The nation of Israel believed Saul would make a great king because of his physical attributes. The, the prophet Samuel, who even lamented and even rebuked Israel over, over choosing Saul, Samuel put Eliab in the asset column before God corrected his faulty math and, and told him that the Lord calculates the heart, not the external. Catholicism added religious rituals to their balance sheet and ended bankrupt and, uh, until the Lord performed an audit during the Reformation and changed a lot of stuff. Muslims think their daily prayers and sincerity will gain them favor with Allah. Uh, Buddhists think their prayer flags waving in the wind will, will multiply spiritual dividends and then add a little self-denial in there and, and that will equal divinity. Even some Baptists uh, compute that their strict separation will please God more than hope in Jesus alone. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us today with some spiritual accounting, and, and he will use his own faulty records as an example. You can learn a lot from a good example. You can also learn something from a bad example. And along the way, Paul is going to give you a foolproof audit of that you can perform on yourself to verify the state of your own eternal books. And, and in the end, he's going to show you what, is, what God considers real value and, and what doesn't impress him in the least. We started the sixth section in the book of Philippians last week. It's, it's really all of chapter 3, where Paul issues some serious warnings to the church. And in chapter 3, he transitions from the examples to imitate to, to some designs to avoid. And he shows us some deadly schemes that can lead us far away from true Christianity. And you remember in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, and, and then he separates uh, uh, the, the, the sheep from the goats. He, he spends the rest of the chapter contrasting the marks of true Christianity with, with the false imitation. He warns the Philippians in verse 2 to beware of of dogs, of evil workers, of, of the mutilation. And then he reminds them, we're the true circumcision. We're the true people of God, that those who, 
who worship by the Spirit, uh, who glory in Jesus Christ alone, and don't rely on, on the flesh. Don't put their trust in any, in any human effort. And, and now Paul's going to give, give his own life's experience as the ultimate example in verses 4 through, through 11. We're only going to cover half of it this morning. In verses 4 through 6, he tells us what is loss on God's ledger. And then in verses 8 through 11, he describes what is gain. And then in verse 7, it, Christ is right in the, in the middle. And John MacArthur titled it, Religious Credits That Don't Impress God. And as I said, we're only going to look at the loss side of the journal this morning in verses 4 through 7. And it's really a very simple and straightforward passage that lists what will not get you into heaven. I mean, everything itemized is what Paul once considered gain. He placed it on the plus side of, of his own spiritual ledger, uh, ledger, and now he realizes that it's all worthless as far as, as, far as salvation goes. He, he lists, just one right after the other, seven advantages from his life that he could boast in. Four of them were inherited privileges. That's how he starts. Things that he inherited. And then the last three are personal achievements that, that he accomplished. Each of these, these pre-Christian boasts build toward a, toward a climax. The, the first four is, is, is relate to his birth and his upbringing, and they're introduced by, by a specific preposition, ek or of. He's, he's of Israel, he's of Benjamin, he's of the Hebrews. And, and he starts with circumcision because that's where the Judaizers started, and all of that culminates with, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then the last three are introduced by a different preposition, kata, or as to, as to the law, as to zeal, as to righteousness. You, you heard Michael read for us, and, and again, he builds from being a Pharisee to, to end with, with one who was considered perfectly blameless according to, to the law. He was really serious, and he kept all of that seriousness. As far as the law was concerned, he was blameless. That, that's how he ends. You summarize this as seven things that, that don't impress God. Seven things that Paul lists that, that do not impress God. God is not impressed by religious rights. God is not impressed by your ethnicity. God is not impressed by your status. God is not impressed by your traditions. God is not impressed by the, by the seriousness that, that you pursue Religion or him, he, he's not impressed by the passion that you possess, and he's not even impressed with the perfection that you obtain in verse 6. I know that's a long list, and you'll get them one at a time as we go through. Let's look at the, the first one. God is not impressed by religious rites or rituals. Look, if you would, at verse 4. He says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I mean, Paul begins by doing something that he hates to do, but he feels compelled to do in order to combat the, the teaching of, 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 the, of the Judaizers. They were telling the Philippians, put, put confidence in the flesh. You know, have Jesus, but then, but then add to it. And he says if anyone could put confidence in his flesh, it would be him. He, he shifts from the, from the we to the... Singular I, we who are the true circumcision, we put no confidence in the flesh, but, but if anyone could, I could, Paul, Paul says. And then he describes why. He's not being conceited. He, he lists every advantage he had as a, as a perfectly pure Jew and a zealous follower of the law. It's not the only place that he does this. He, he, 
He feels compelled to do the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11 in defense of his apostleship. Look at what he says there. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And then he goes on and on. I mean, even more than, than I list here. That passage goes on all the way through chapter 12. Paul says if you're going to listen to men based on their human credentials, I, I've got even better ones. But that entire basis is foolish. He says it's insane. I mean, the difference with the, with the Philippians here is this is an attack on the gospel, not on, not on Paul's apostleship. And the Judaizers who are exalting their Jewish privilege as reason they should be followed, Paul outlines an even more orthodox pedigree. And he uses an accounting or, or business model to describe a, a spiritual ledger of profits and losses. Look, if you would, at verse 8. Drop down to verse 8, because here's where all of the, the analogy comes in. He gives the list, and then he says in verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge, a uh, value of knowing... Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I mean, the words that he uses here for, for count and loss and gain, they're all business terms. And the, the Philippians would have, would have known that, they would have heard it. And so before meeting Jesus Christ, Paul banked on, on, uh, on what he listed here. And, and it was definitely on the human side of the, uh, of the ledger. But after meeting the Lord, it was now completely worthless. What was at one time considered gain or profit, he now looks at it and it doesn't even register as an asset, he says. It's, it's rubbish. It's, it's dung. It's not just a lesser thing, like, like Christ outweighs it. It's like you put, you put all of these things on this side of the scale and then Jesus on the other side of the scale and Jesus outweighs it. He goes even beyond that. He, he, he says it's worthless. It's valueless as it relates to salvation. I mean, it doesn't even help a little. It, it's not even admissible for comparison. That's what he means when he says he suffered loss of all things. He took them off the books. He, he, he had them in the asset side, and, and now he's re- completely removed them from the books, and he goes further than that. I count them as manure. I count them as, as dung. This is not just a comparison of, of what you have in the world and, and what you have with Christ. This is a total repudiation of one and a total exaltation in, in the other. Paul says they're not even comparable. One is riches and the other is, is waste. And I want you to, to notice whenever you're listening to the list that Paul goes through, he's not talking about an immoral life here. I mean, he's comparing a very religious and very moral life, even a Jewish life, to to Jesus Christ. Don't think that wicked deeds are, are the only filthy rags before the Lord or, or rubbish when, when compared to Christ. Even moral duties are trash, Paul says. MacArthur said men who believe their goodness or their religion can make them right with God violate two things, God's law and God's person. 
One elevates man to be equal with God. The other pulls God down to to a position so low that man might be able to reach him. Immoralities violate God's law, but, but religion violates God's person. Religion is man's attempt to manipulate God, thinking that he is much lower than he really is, as if you could reach him. And, and it's like Paul makes a list in the, the bank credit column and then the, the, the bank debit column, and in the debit column he places all of his Jewishness, and, and in the credit column he places one thing, Jesus Christ. And we know there's nothing wrong with being a Jew. In fact, they had great privileges. I mean, the Bible tells us that, that they have the covenants and they, they receive the law. Salvation is to the Jew first. The Messiah came from, from the Jews. But Paul says now that Christ has come, trusting in any of that for righteousness is all garbage. Super strong word here. I mean, you might could think of it this way, how this exchange took place. I mean, right now, if you had an armored truck full of $100 bills parked at your house and it was all yours, you might think that you were a pretty rich person. And, and from a certain standpoint, you, you would be. Not as rich as you would have been if you had a truck full of $100 bills in 1950. Even that changes. But imagine if you have that truck and, and the world economy collapses and, and there's no food or water. How much would that paper actually be worth? I mean, does money have any inherent value? Does that piece of paper have any inherent value? I mean... It, it can't hydrate you, it can't sustain you, it, it can't feed you. It has value because, because the system that you operate in says it does have value. Humans value it. Beyond that, it's just paper. It's worthless. You're going to be able to start a fire with it if everything collapses. It's the same way with discovering Christ. What once seemed to have real, legitimate, spiritual value to you has now been rendered valueless by receiving Him. And it's no surprise that Paul starts this, this list of what doesn't impress God with, with circumcision, ritual, which is the very thing that the religious purveyors were, were saying was necessary to be a real Christian. I mean, yeah, you can be a Christian by coming to Christ, but if you want to be a real Christian, a good Christian, then, then you need to circumcise yourself. You need to follow the law. And so Paul says, listen, as far as circumcision, circumcision goes, he says, literally, I'm an eighth-day one. The G and B says, uh, with respect to circumcision, an eighth-dayer, meaning he kept the religious rite perfectly. Everyone was circumcised as a Jew, but not everyone was circumcised seven days after birth, exactly as the ritual demanded. I mean, you could become a proselyte, a proselyte and, and you were circumcised whenever you got converted, even as a grown person. No doubt some of the Judaizers were proselytes. At least that's what they were saying to the Gentiles. I mean, come, and then they're being circumcised not when they're born, but, but later. Other Jews have been circumcised later in life, like in Joshua 5, the Jews even by birth, not the proselytes. Those born in the wilderness were not circumcised until they crossed into the promised land. Paul says, I'm a Jew by birth. Uh, my parents followed the exact rites uh, required by the law. Uh, he was not like Ishmael's descendants who was circumcised in the 13th year. He was not like a proselyte from paganism who, who would have been circumcised when he was converted. He was from a family who made careful provisions to fulfill the requirements of the law. And he says as far as salvation is concerned, it means nothing. It doesn't impress God at all. 
What rituals are you trusting in? What, what, what rights or things do, do you think you've placed in the spiritual asset column that somehow they, they impress God? Talking about salvation. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. There's the salvation part. You know what that says? It says you might have a different ethnicity, social status, gender role, but we all come to God the same way. And the answer to the sin of partiality or prejudice is the gospel of Christ in, in, in a biblical church. Telling people that your ethnicity or your race has given you an unfair advantage or a raw deal doesn't fix anything. Telling them that there is one God and one mediator of all men does. Because God's not impressed by your race. It means nothing to him. I'll show you the third thing that God's not impressed with. Paul says he's not impressed by your status either. Look at verse 5. He, he says uh, he was of the nation of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin. He's just building in intensity here. He points out the pre-salvation asset of his specific tribe, which gave him an elevated place even in the children of Israel. I mean, the tribe of Benjamin was one of two prominent tribes, uh, Judah being the other one. They made up the southern kingdom. You remember when the kingdom split? There were ten that... Then there were two. There were two that remained loyal to, to David's line. Benjamin was one of those tribes. Benjamin was the offspring of, of Rachel, who was one of Jacob's favorite. Jacob said Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob. He was the only son born in the promised land. I mean, you just add... Uh, significance upon significance from coming from the, the tribe of Benjamin. The Benjamites were, were the tribe of, of the first king. Saul was a Benjamite. God even favored the tribe of Benjamin with territory that included Jerusalem. I mean, Judges one twenty one. When you think about Mount Moriah, the place that Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, that place which became the, the location of the first temple and then the second temple, which became the place where Jesus Christ was crucified, that land, that segment of the promised land, was, was given to the, to the Benjamites. But MacArthur said Paul's point was not just that he was a Benjamite. It was his point that by this time the the Jews around Paul no longer knew what tribe they were from due to intermarriage and years of exile. So what Paul is saying here is his family remained pure. His family knew exactly what his tribe was from. They did not intermarry. They were pure Benjamites. And as far as salvation is concerned, that's meaningless. Listen, you may come from a noble family or a wealthy one like the Rockefellers. My family comes from the hills of West Virginia. You might not even know your biological mother or father. When God says in light of salvation, your family origin is meaningless. It doesn't elevate you or make it harder for you to get in. Kings and crack addicts come the same way, totally trusting in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if your grandfather was a missionary and your mom was a Sunday school leader and your dad was a pastor. It doesn't matter if you were baptized uh, into the church as, as an infant and confirmed at 12 and you've got all the certificates on your wall at home. Not one of them will write your name into the Lamb's Book of Life. Not one. None of them will get you one inch into the other side of heaven. If you wish to get into heaven, you must come yourself through God's only door, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is not impressed by your status. He's also not impressed by 
by your traditions. Here's the, the last one and the first four that, that Paul received by, by birth. God's not impressed by the traditions you keep. He, he says, not only was he a, a Benjamite, but he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Here's the climax. Paul says he was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents, which means his family kept the traditions. Being a Jew, being a Hebrew Jew, was regarded as, as being a pure blood. It means he wasn't Hellenized, and neither was his mom or dad. And during the, the time of Alexander the Great, between the Testaments, the, the Jewish people were, were scattered, and, and those that were, were, were scattered about in that category were called the, the, the diaspora. And many of the Jews that were scattered, that were away from, from Jerusalem, started adopting the culture that was around them. They, they started speaking Greek, and they adopted Greek dress, but they were still Jews. They were just Hellenized. They, they adopted part of the, part of the culture. And that created a caste system between those who remained Hebrews, true Hebrews, and those who, who were Hellenized. I mean, you might recall in Acts 6, the first issue in the church comes up between the Hellenized Jews and the, the, the Hebraic Jews. They're arguing over, over their widows. And that's all because there's, this, there's this, this issue in the background. They're not taking care of Grandma. Do you remember when Paul was arrested toward the end of Acts and he's facing a mob and, and uh, he's being whisked away and he asked to address the crowd and, I mean, they're ready to kill him. They, they want to string him up and so they let him, they let him speak and he begins to speak in Hebrew, it says, and the whole crowd hushes. It's because it was favored. Whoa, Hebrew. Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I spoke the language, I kept the traditions and customs. I did not assimilate into the culture around me. And I used to think that that lifted me up a little closer to heaven, but now I tell you, it did not get me out of the latrine, literally. He says, it's dung. Listen, you might do, not do many things that this wicked culture are, uh, around you does. You might not go to movies. Uh, if you do, you might not go to R-rated movies. You, you might not have a smartphone or, or a TV. You may homeschool your kids and... And only let them watch Little House on the Prairie on DVD. Some of that may help them from being tainted by the muck of this world, but it won't help them to get into heaven. God is not impressed by your traditions. He's only pleased with His Son, Jesus Christ. But not only can, can Paul outmatch their Jewishness, he also can outdo them in, in effort. Look at number five. Watch how it changes here. As to the law of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, he says, a, a Pharisee. God's not impressed by the seriousness. You pursue any of these things. Now Paul turns from, from the things that he's inherited to the things he achieved himself. I mean, it's one thing to be granted a certain status by, by, by being born with it. It's another to accomplish something yourself. We want to accomplish something ourselves. And so Paul gives a list here. He says, as to the way he approached the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, the term Pharisee occurs 99 times in the New Testament. And, and this is the only time outside of the Gospels and Acts that it occurs. And it's right here. And Paul puts it in a list of what humans would boast in. 
Now, you've heard about the Pharisees. You probably have a very negative view of them, and rightly so. I mean, if you, you read the New Testament, you know they were proud hypocrites that, that uh, opposed the Lord Jesus. But to an average Jew, I mean, they were the model to attain. I mean, you would think, I could never do what the Pharisees do. But, I mean, they're really sincere. They're, they're, they're really serious. They take this law thing really serious. The word Pharisee meant someone who's separate, someone who's set apart to the law. And, and they were not half-hearted followers. They, they were serious. They were sincere. They're set apart from others, set apart to God. They're like the Orthodox Jews of today. And, and they didn't start out as hypocrites. They ended up that way. Which is where trusting in yourself will, will ultimately end up. They didn't start out that way, though, during the 400-year period between the last prophet and the, and the coming of Christ, forerunner being John the Baptist. The Pharisees were, were a group who were truly sincere about keeping the law. I mean, their, their roots go all the way back to the time of Ezra in the revival of, of the law where people turned back to God. And, and it wasn't until much later that they began to trust in their methods as a means of salvation itself. And to be a Pharisee was a high honor and only a few could keep the mandates. Uh, you know, it's like being in the special forces. Anybody, not just anybody can get into the Marines, but if you get in, you I mean you have to go in the, 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 the real, you know, gung-ho ones go into the, the special forces. One commentator said that Josephus estimated there were only 6,000 Pharisees in all the land of Israel in the first century. I mean, there's a lot of followers around them and scribes and otherwise, but there were only 6,000 that got, that got in the club. And Paul says, I was one of those men. In his declaration before Agrippa in Acts 26, 5, Paul said he lived as a Pharisee. Before the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 23, 6, he says, I'm the son of a Pharisee, which probably means his father had been a Pharisee before him. I'm a Baptist preacher and the son of a Baptist preacher. He was not only a Pharisee by birth, but he was a Pharisee by conviction. And he bound himself by doing that, not only to obey the law of Moses, but also the hundred, hundreds of other commandments contained in the oral law, and the, specifically the interpretations of, of the scribes, which the Pharisees regarded as equally binding. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of it. But as hard as that was, and as much dedication and sacrifice as it required, Paul now added it to the lost side of the ledger. You think of all the effort that he put in every Sabbath, every day. And there are people all over the world that think their access to heaven is based on their religious seriousness, religious sacrifices, the rules that they keep. They give themselves to Hindu temples. They, they take vows of poverty. They, they become celibate. And they're serious about it. Not all the Catholic priests are, are pedophiles. Some of them are serious, seriously deceived, but serious. And Paul says even your seriousness and being successful at it means nothing. Only Christ will matter in the end. This is exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7, and 23, when He said, Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. And then He lists a bunch of religious stuff. I mean, things that are good. We prophesied in Your name. We cast out demons. We performed miracles. And then He said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. You were never part of the kingdom. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's lawless, trusting in anything. It's, it's not just doesn't get you in a little bit. It's, it's totally repudiated. There's two more. God is not impressed by the, the passion that you possess. Those who are Pentecostals would fall under this category and plenty of others as well. Maybe you. God's not impressed by your passion. Look at verse 6. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul now turns to what he did outwardly with this fastidious passion. He, he, he had zeal and he proved his zeal. He turned it on others who he thought was, were apostates. Zeal in Judaism is, is the highest virtue that you can possess. It's like the pinnacle. It's a perfect combination of love and, and hate. You love God so much that, that, that you hate those who stand against Him. You can hear it in Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That's zeal. You feel a touch of it at times. You might call it righteous indignation. Don't you get angry with a righteous anger when, when you think about all the religions of the world that, that are sending people to hell? Don't the false teachers who fleece the poor draw your ire whenever you, you turn on the Daystar channel or whatever it is and people are talking about sowing seeds? And, or the homosexual movement that outright lies to youth and tells them that you're born that way and then once they buy the lie, it leaves them devastated in unimaginable sin, unmanageable sin and depression? I do. I hate it with a passion of hatred. Well, Paul says... He not only had that kind of zeal, he did something with it. He poured it out on the church. In his religious mind, they, they were leading people away from the law, and they had to be stopped. And so he went after them, volunteered to go after them. He regretted it so much later that he was still talking about it. After he planted churches, after his conversion toward the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. This is a passage where he's the chief of sinners. And, and, and two of the three things that he lists there have to do with, with this persecution of the church. He said, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly. Paul says, I was ignorant. My ignorance was I thought that somehow that added up to God in, in some way. And, and now I know it's just rubbish. But now Paul says that you can hate everything that God hates. You can love His ways with a fervent love. You can love His church to the point that you'll give your whole life serving it. You can spend your entire life fighting the abortion industry or the secularists or the cults. And, and even if you're successful, it will not net you one day of eternity. God is not impressed by passion. He's also not impressed with the perfection that you obtain. Here's the, the culmination of this second list, if you would, at verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul gives one final previous asset in his list 
And this one is a summary of all the others. He's already mentioned his achievements in two of the most important components of Judaism, uh, law and zeal. And the third one is righteousness. A good Jew had, was, was, uh, kept the law, they were, they, were, they were zealous, they loved God, and they hated what God had hate, and, and then hated, and then, then they, they pursued righteousness. P.T. O'Brien says, Paul was a man who scrupulously observed the law's requirements according to the Torah, interpreted by the Pharisees, and he had become blameless meaning that no one could call any part of his life into question. I mean, Paul here says he approached God before salvation the same way that the rich young ruler did. You remember the rich young ruler? You ever read that passage, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, you know, good teacher, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you know, well, what does Moses tell you? And, and he says, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus says, go and do that. And then the rich young ruler says, I've done that since my youth. And you go, what do you mean? He, he was absolutely sincere. He was saying the same thing that Paul was saying. I mean, as far as, as, as using the law and keeping it outwardly, I was blameless. I, I've done that from, from the beginning. I mean, I was raised in the church, and, and I went to Sunday school, and, and, and in vacation Bible school, I... I, I gave my heart to Jesus, and, and I didn't have a period of rebellion. I, I, I was a good Christian boy. I, I did everything that, that I, was, I was supposed to, supposed to do. I was blameless. I didn't have some fanciful testimony of falling away. He approached God in the same way the rich young ruler did, and he said, I've kept all these things for my youth, and, and he spoke with absolute confidence. And before Paul came to Christ, he did all these things, and he did them without fault. He's not saying it's possible for somebody to be perfect, or, or he's not claiming sinlessness. He's claiming righteousness that came from the scales of the law. Weighed against the scales of the law, there would be nothing that, that you could accuse me of. He, he's saying as far as the requirements of Judaism was concerned, if you observed my life, you wouldn't find any fault. If you weighed his life compared to the law code, he would have merit on those scales. He would have righteous weight. That's what Paul says. Now, you can't say that, and I can't say that, but Paul could. But let's say you could. Let's say you could say that. Let's say you were successful of doing all those things or whatever your religious code requires. You, you followed the rituals of, of your religion. You were born the right way. You, you had the right ethnicity, uh, the right bloodline. You, you kept all the traditions. Uh, you were intense in your in your pursuit, and you separated yourself from, from the world. You haven't even seen a Walt Disney movie. You were zealous uh, about your religion, and, and no one could find a single fault with you. You were blameless as far as all these things go. Paul says it would profit you nothing for heaven. Not one thing. Isn't that exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith and so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but, but I have not love, I gain nothing. He's not talking about emotive, emotional kind of, of, of love. He's talking about divine love, love for God that works itself out. And there are people that, that think their activities are, are equated to love. That comes from the heart. You know where that love comes from? Not you, not your religious accomplishments. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. And He loved us on the cross, and, and He offers that love through, through repentance and faith. And then when the Spirit of God transforms you, Romans 5 says that that, that love bubbles up in your heart. It, 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 his, he's the source. And if He's not the source, then all of those other things that you're doing are meaningless. And so he ends with verse 7. Look at you at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, whatever was in the prophet column, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says whenever I go through the rituals and the ethnicity and the status and all the rest, I, I find I am diminished to nothing. I stand naked in my sin before God. I have nothing to offer Him. There's nothing in my hands. There's nothing on my ledger. And do you know that's exactly where you need to be to be saved? Because it's in that state that you can cast your eyes to a righteousness outside of yourself. Until you get there, you're always looking inward for righteousness. You're always looking about what you do for righteousness. But when, when, when you get to the place where you have nothing, no place to turn, you know you have nothing, then, then your eyes are able to, to, to look for a righteousness that's outside of you, an alien righteousness, a, a righteousness that's provided to you, a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ alone. God has to tear down before He can build up. And I'm afraid until you get there, you may take Jesus, but you'll add a bunch of other stuff. And the Bible says salvation is a great exchange. Your sin for Christ's righteousness. Your destiny for His divinity. Your tormented end for His endless glory. Salvation is not by inheritance. It's not by achievement. It's by faith in God's Son alone. Chew by your heads. What are you trusting in? I mean, sincerely, what are you trusting in? I can't see your heart. You know it. Paul says we need to boast or exalt on the right basis, and it's in Christ's work, not our own. Human merit, human status, human achievement, they're all worthless and weightless. To believe in Jesus Christ is to put your confidence in Him and Him alone. He is your, your ground for confidence. And He is the place that you trust. Maybe you're here this morning and you... You have Jesus in there, but you're, you're really depending on a number of other things, whatever it might be. It has to be Christ alone. Trust Him today. Just turn from all those things and, and repent, turn to the Lord.
maybe you're a Christian and maybe you started that way. You knew it was Jesus, but you're like the Galatians. You began in the Spirit, and now you think you're being perfected or you gain by the deeds of your flesh, and you're dried, and you've lost your joy. Two things that will steal a Christian's joy, sin and not focusing on Christ, not trusting in Christ alone. If it's sin, you need to repent. If it's something other than Christ, you just need to turn your eyes back to the Lord, back to Jesus. And the joy bells will ring again. Father, we love you. We thank you for this list of just showing us very plainly what does not impress you. What doesn't impress you should not impress us. What you say is valuable, that's what we say is valuable. And so we just rejoice in Jesus this morning. We thank you for this, this clear passage about salvation and sanctification for us as believers. Help us, I pray, to obey it in Jesus' name. Amen.